Welcome to episode 63 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. I'm Brian Jackson. This is a really fast one because we have an hour and a half of content for you to get to. We were with John Lax. Got to make the most of it. Before we get into the show, we have one sponsor that made this episode possible. Huge thanks to Code School. If you are a person, check. And you are a designer, check. And you want to learn how to code, check. CodeSchool.com is the place to do that. CodeSchool is an online learning destination for both existing and new aspiring developers that will teach you how to code through actually entertaining content. They have immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges so that you're learning to code uh, while you actually type in the comfort of your browser. But can I learn TryR? Uh, yeah, as a matter Chrome of fact, Dev you Tools. can. Yep, yep. Swift. Uh-huh. Objective-C. That's right. JavaScript. Uh-huh. Ruby. Yes. I'm not reading this, so I'm just making them up right now. The HTML, last... CSS. Yep, yep. HTML emails via Luchador. That's correct. And Git. So if you are a new programmer or you've been programming for decades, Code School has something that'll help you brush up on your skills or get started with something new. They have an iPhone app and an iPad app, so you can take your learning on the go. Uh, makes it really easy to kind of learn along wherever you are in the world. More than a million people around the world use Code School to improve their development skills and learn by actually writing code. So once again, if you want to just get into coding, uh, I know there's a lot of designers out there that... Should have, designers code? Yes, designers should code at codeschool.com slash design details. Uh, check them out there for more information and you can start playing courses and learning today. And with that, let's get into episode 63 with John Lax. My name is John Lax. Uh, I currently work at Facebook where I am uh, the design director, uh, product design director on the Utility Org, which is one of the organizations in Facebook. But I'm probably most uh, known for co-founding and running a design firm, a product design firm in Toronto, uh, Canada called Tien and Lax. And uh, we were pretty well known for some Photoshop files and writing about the work we did up there. Is Drake your favorite rapper? I do not like Drake. <laughs> Drake, uh, Drake actually grew up not far from where I grew up. And uh, I can tell you that um, I grew up on a street uh but not the streets and drake <laughs> grew up about three blocks from me and uh he's from a fairly uh well-to-do neighborhood well-to-do neighborhood he gets and, a lot of shit for that right? but was he yeah. calmly running through with his woes he <laughs> he was much younger than me so uh, we 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 didn't sort of we weren't of the same cohort but in toronto we definitely uh i know a lot of people who run with his crew or like you when, weren't in the same woe uh, circle we were not in the same woe circles i was not I, i'm not a big drake fan i i it's it's music that uh lyrically i just don't connect with because i feel like it's I'm I'm 43. He's I don't know what he is in his 20s or maybe or late no 20s, early 30s. Um, and I just feel like, you know, I, I just don't connect with lyrically. I listen to it and I'm like, I, this does nothing for me. And I like come out of the era of like Public Enemy and like if we're talking about like rap, it's like you know Dougie Fresh and NWA and Public Enemy and uh, the Beastie Boys, and they're just not talking about their feelings in quite the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see all right, all Straight right. Out of Compton? I haven't seen it yet. It, it, I just was traveling at that time and missed it. And although I hear it's amazing and I, I need to check it out. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet either. So. Okay. <laughs> Can you explain like what the utility org means? Yeah, sure. So um, Facebook on the product side is organized into four or five, depending how you think about it organizations that build the things that we build that people in the community use. So those four orgs are utility, engagement, ads, and growth. And then the fifth one would be Instagram. 
I sort of leave it out there not to diss Instagram, but they're, they have, they're very, they have somewhat autonomous and they get to work on their product in a, in an autonomous way. Pretty but, standoffish. Yeah, but they're, they're kind they're, of a dick. They're in there. <laughs> no, they're not. They're, they're in the mix. They're in the mix. They, but they, they get, they're, they're sort of like the stepbrother, right? They're, okay. they're there. Um, and uh, so, you know, going down the list, engagement, the best way to think about engagement is the news feed. They do other things, but that's the one that you would, most people would be very familiar with. Um, ads and pages or core business, I think would be pretty self-explanatory about what they work on. Growth really works on how are we growing our user base. And so things like internet.org, uh, some of the uh, things we do to bring internet access and connectivity, working on um, you know how do you get Facebook on feature phones. Messenger is also part of growth, and I won't go into the backstory about why, but um, they're, they're, they're in there. And then everything else is in utility. So in utility, we have things like uh, your profile. Um, we deal with all of our local things. So when you go out into the world and you check in and what happens there and work we're doing with local, biz- local businesses, we work with the pages group on that. Uh, events is in there. Facebook search is something in utility, uh, our developer network, and then payments and commerce uh, is in there as well, the work we're doing around payments and commerce. So it's a wide range of things um, that get rolled together into the utility org. Uh, and so my job is to oversee the, all of the design in there. And so that's you know making sure that the teams are set up with the right people, making sure that we're working together, making sure that you know, work is moving towards uh, a, a high quality bar, a that we're building things that people want to use and, and that are going to hopefully be really well designed. And so, yes, yeah, so that's the, the utility work. Did you pick utility? Utility picked me. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. So when we started talking to Facebook about potentially uh, joining, uh, they, Facebook and specifically Luke Woods and Margaret Stewart and Julie Zhu had really said that they, that this role in utility they thought I was really well suited for. Uh, and they had similarly with Jeff, I don't, I'm, I don't know when he was in here, we talked about what he was working on in, inside of newsfeed. They thought that Jeff was really well suited for, for that role. And Dave Gillis, our, our sort of unnamed third partner who, who doesn't, I think, get enough credit because his name wasn't on the door. They had, they had some, a few things that they thought Dave might be you know, really well suited for. And he got to actually pick. But for me, it was very much like, this is the thing we want you to do. Why do you think they said that you were well suited for utility. I'm not sure if it was like utility. It was maybe more the 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 role that they needed filled in there, uh, like and the director. Role yeah, like I had I had really been focused at TN and Lax on some of the more macro things and how are we building this company and and thinking out um, on the time horizon. You know, I was just the role that I had I had um, not inherited, but just I was good at and I, I, I was doing and filling in the organization was really thinking about where is Tina and Lax going to go over the next 12 to 18 months? What are the things we're starting to put in place uh, to make sure we get there? What are the things that we are investing in? Um, make, talking to clients, setting more what I would call like vision. The other partners were far more focused on executing the client work day to day. Towards the end, I got much more involved back in the client work and was like running teams through designing product for a few clients. Um, but I would say for the majority of the last five years, I was, I was doing that kind of work. And so it mapped closer to what the director level, the director position was that utility needed and what just utility was trying to, to work through. There was a lot of organization design. No one had been in the role previous to me. 
And so they were trying to figure out like, what do we need to do at a macro level to get our, the utility design org moving in, in, in a right, in a positive direction. Can you talk about like some of the first steps you took? Like how do you move into a role that big that covers so many products yeah. and even break down like what you have to do to be successful? Yeah. So I think about everything whenever I look at a business problem, I think about three factors, values, resources, and process. And so just to quickly run through those, values is like what's important here? What are we telegraphing that's important to, to the organization? Do they understand what's important? What do we value? How do we make decisions and choices in the absence of data? You use values to do that, right? I have two roads in front of me. I'm going to do this over this. So I was like, what are, you know, do we have the right values? Are we valuing the right things? Process is pretty easy. Is there a process? Do we have a set of steps that we know work to get us to some sort of outcome? Or are there things that we know to be true that we just repeat because they work, right? Uh, and then finally, resources. Do we have the right people, tools? You know, what resources do we have? And so I, I, in resources, it's both like human capital, like people resources, and then um you know, software, like an example of this might be, are we all using Sketch or are we all using Photoshop or are we using some other, you know, resource to get our jobs Mm -hmm. done? And so I, when I came in, I looked at all three of those and there were things I wanted to do in each one of them. The major one, when I got, when I showed up was resources, we were pretty under-resourced, meaning our headcount compared to where we wanted to be was, was less than we wanted to be. And the, the reality is, is if you just don't have the people to do the work, like to actually think about these things, process and values are kind of not that important, right? right? It's like, great, we got a great value statement that I put up on the wall and here's a process and there's no one to do it. It doesn't, doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. So the, the first thing that I spent a lot of time with, and the whole design org was really working on this, was like, hey, let's go get the great people to come work um, on these problems. And you picked Brian? <laughs> on a scale of eight to ten, how bad do you feel about that decision? I, <laughs> there were regrets. There are regrets. Okay. <laughs> we we don't do everything perfectly. Uh, uh, no, like, that cuts deep, man. Uh, I just had to do it. I had to do it. I'm really curious though about the values part. Yeah, where do those come from? Is that a top down thing or yeah, so culture? Of the three of those things, values is actually the one that I'm going to spend the least amount of time working on, not because it isn't important, but because it is from the top down, right? What we value as a culture uh, at Facebook or at any company really is what's important to the CEO. And so um, I'm just going to talk a bit, maybe a bit more about it, Tina and Lacks, how we did it, because where I had a lot more control over, over the values and the ability to say, this is what's important, right? And if you've ever read the very, very long story of our company, I talk about this and that, but if you haven't read it, and I forgive you for not having read it because it's quite indulgent and long, um, I talk about it in, in, at one part. Uh, for those of you who didn't read it, what happened was in 2010, I had never really believed in values. I had always thought that they were kind of like corporate bullshit. You know, it's like a mission statement that gets written out and just like everyone just rolls their eyes. And I just never really understood you know, why you needed these things. And in 2010, uh, two things happened that totally changed how I thought about this. One of them was our company was kind of falling apart. We were having, for the first time in our history, we had really, really bad attrition. We had previously to that had like people sticking around. Like we had pretty much all the people who had started with us in 2002, like were there in 2010, not all, but like a lot of them, right? And they all just started leaving. And then on top of that, we had people that we hired in like less than a year previously leaving as well it was really really bad we had like really like people were just sort of leaving and we're like oh my god like what what the fuck is happening here and 
at the same time, I read, if you've ever watched, there's, there's a pretty famous Netflix um, deck that was leaked, uh, an internal deck. And it, it was the one where everyone was like, sort of, they everyone latched on to the fact that, that Netflix didn't have a didn't have vacation policy. Like you just take, there's no actual mm-hmm. like vacation time. And everyone kind of glommed onto that as like the thing. But there was, it was about a 116 slide deck. And there was the more interesting, like that was probably the least interesting thing in that whole deck if you actually read it. In there, they had this state, this thing about values, and it said in it, it said, values help us determine who to hire, who to fire, uh, who to reward. And I just was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Like if you actually write it down and you're like, this is what's important to us, and we're going to hire based on this, and we're going to fire based on this, and we're going to reward based on this, and we're going to not, if you don't do these things, that's bad. That crystallized for me. And so I started working like, okay, well, how do you come up with your values? And that's actually a really hard question to answer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because like, what process do you go through to uncover those? And I looked at a lot of kind of corporate bullshit, which was like, yeah. like easy to I, find. Like, and I just was like, oh, like none of this feels right. And then because we were going through all this attrition, I kind of hired an HR consultant to be like, help. Like, I don't know what's going on. And she had suggested to me this, this exercise called Mountains and Valleys, which uh, you can find online. It, it comes um, from a kind of a management consultant. So don't hold that against him. Um, and we did it and it, and basically the exercise is really simple. Like I can tell it to you. It doesn't, you don't have to go read the the blog post and download the workbook. Uh, Dave Logan um, is his name. He wrote the book tribal leadership okay. and in the mountains and valleys. It says, look, sit down with the people you work with and ask them just really simply two questions. Think back over your, your life and your career. And like, what are the moments that were like mountains, like highs, like the things where you're just like, this is awesome. And then similarly, like write down the things where you're like, this sucks. And it could be anything. It could be like, you know, the birth of your child. It could be a professional accomplishment. It could be, you know, it could be anything. And I did that with all the partners and I had them, they were, I was, they were like, there was a lot of eye rolling and, you know, like, oh, and we did it. And what you do then is like you interrogate each one of those things. Like, okay, you have this thing that was awesome for you. Like, why was it awesome? Like, what was it? And as I went through this exercise and I talked to everyone and I kind of analyzed their things, it came, it turned out there were a handful of things that all of the partners, like myself, Jeff, Dave, there was another partner at the time named Jeremy. There were these like patterns that emerged where it turned out like one of the things that was present in all of like the crappy moments we had had professionally was we had been lied to. There had been some sort of like corruption of dishonesty. There had been Hmm. this like moment where we were like deceived and we had all had them. We all had these moments and we realized that like what we valued was honesty. That sounds really obvious, but to be honest, like, there's a lot of companies that don't value that, right? Like, I'm, I'm not sure if you went to Goldman Sachs, they'd be like, what we value is like honesty, right? They're, <laughs> honesty, they're like, we, transparency. Yeah, yeah. And no knock on Goldman Sachs. Don't <laughs> don't kill me. Um, uh, <laughs> whatever, the army, yeah, whatever army they've got, right? <laughs> You're about uh, to get Goldman Sachs. Yeah. yeah. They, they, you know, they, they value profit maximization, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be honest to do that. And so like, that was an example of something we're like, wow, like, we're just going to write this down. Like we value on it and we're going to make decisions around this. So like how this actually translates into work is when we went to go do our, our site, we were like, we're just going to be like really fucking honest, mm-hmm. you know? And when you read those things, we talk about like the case studies, the case and, and just everything. I mean, if you read, like, we just were like, here it all is right. Cause that's just what we value. We wrote them down, we put them into a booklet, and we just talked about them with our staff. And we were like, this is why we exist as a company. 
This is what, we, and it's not just about making money. There are other things here that are present that we just really, really value. That was incredibly clarifying for people. And almost instantly, like things kind of snapped into focus. The attrition went down. We hired better because we could ask these questions like, what do you value? You can mm-hmm. ask those, not directly you ask that question, but you can get at it. You can understand when you're going to go hire someone. It's like, is, are you going to be happy here? Right. And so values are like, you can get them and you can distill them out. Now, at Facebook, it's a little, it's a little tougher because those values really do have to come from the top. And I think as a design, you know, I can set values for the design org. You know, our one value is like let's make things that people use, and that kind of aligns to the other to the other values, um, sure. and that that's what we really like doing. And I think that we could probably write that down, talk about it as a design group, and then identify when it gets corrupted and try to go, okay, wait, <laughs> we're we're not living up to the thing that we mm-hmm. value here, but. I've been more reticent at Facebook. I've been sort of, I'll inherit the values. And you know, I mean, you walk around, there's like a million slogans. There's, there's, all, there's a lot of things floating around. And so for me, just to sort of add three or four more, I don't think would be all that helpful. Uh, so there I'm trying to like use ones that are already present and then say, okay, what does this mean for us in the design organization? What does this mean for us in the utility design organization? I mean, one of the challenges at Facebook is if, you know, Brian, if you think about it, you know, there's a lot of allegiances you need to have, right? There's allegiance to Facebook and the mission that it's trying to do. And then you sit inside the utility organization. And so myself and Mike Vernal, there's things we're trying to do as a, as an org, right? But then you also sit inside of the platform organization. And so there's an allegiance to what Deb Liu is, is trying to do in the platform organization. And then, but then you're also inside the, the payments group. And so there's like things that Amir and you are trying, and you have all these, and then you're also part of Facebook design, right? So you have all these allegiances that, okay, so which value am I sort of at this moment in time, am I staying true to? So that's why it's really important that we just stay true to the, the highest one. Cause that's just easier. Focus uh, them down instead of like multiplying them, like narrow them. Yeah, or just it's just it's it's like if every one of those things I just mentioned set out values, they would mm-hmm. all eventually they would probably conflict, right? There'd be one part of that matrix that I just outlined that would want to do something that might, you know, s- sit up in opposition to yeah. to another one of those values. So it's probably just easier to say, what does Mark want to do? Because at the end of the day, that's the one <laughs> that, that we're probably going to do, <laughs> and say, let's okay, let's let's take that one, and we're going to like hold on to that one and trust that that value has been vetted and thought about by all of management. Yeah, and and that and that this is what's important to the company mm-hmm. and therefore this is what's going to move things forward. And I think when I think about those things, connecting the world, making things that people want to use, I mean it's pretty easy for us as in the design org to just say, yeah, that feels good. Sure. You know, that feels good. Yeah, makes sense. Do you ever get to flex your like IC muscles at all? No. I haven't done that in years either. I kind of I mean, figured that was the yeah. case. I think um one thing about me is you kind of have to go back in my history to understand, like I was never really actually a designer. Um, I, the long story of my, of my career is, let's just go through the whole long story. Go through the whole thing. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay. Um, so I, I was in journalism school in 1994 and the time is actually really, really important to understand how my career developed. Um, and, and so if you think about 1994, the web only comes out, like the first browser only comes out in 1993. I had on my own, but it's been super always interested in computers and really interested in the internet since the, um, 91, 90, which was back then, like the Usenet and mm-hmm. no graphical. Gopher and all that. Gopher, yeah. yeah. Like that was when I was, at, I was in college and 
you know, I spent just all my time on, you know, Gopher and the Usenet and news groups and, and the community, like really the community parts of that were just fascinating to me. And I learned Unix and just to, cause that's what you needed to learn to navigate internet in those days. And then in 93, NCSA Mo- Mosaic comes out, you have a browser. I saw, I saw HTML for the first time and I was like, yes, I need to figure out how to do this. And so I taught myself HTML, which back then was like really easy. There was like 15 tags, you know, and like one of them was blink. And uh, uh, it was just really simple, right? It was like tables. And I was like, I get this. Now I go to journalism school in the summer, started in the summer of 1994. And I had already picked up HTML. And when I got to journalism school, there was a professor there who was really fascinated. There was a very early listserv from journalists who were really debating the you know, how the internet was going to change journalism. I mean, these guys were, these men and women were mainly academics. They were way ahead of their time and they fundamentally understood the disruption that was going to occur. I mean, there were, there was a group of probably 80 or 90 mainly professors talking about how this, the internet was going to fundamentally disrupt journalism. One of those people was my professor who eventually went on to become the dean of journalism school at the university, a man named Stephen Kimber, way ahead of his time. And I was like, I know how to do HTML. And he was like, you come with me. And there wasn't kind of a digital journalism program because that dis- wasn't a thing in 1994. But he let me do what would have been a magazine program. But instead of doing print layouts, I would do like website, web pages. And I worked with him on a bunch of stuff. And he he really gave me a lot of freedom to like publish to the web, not just to the student newspaper, which is what most of my class was doing. But simultaneously, I was in the magazine program. And so I had to learn Quark as Quark Express as part of that. So because they taught you basic layout, I learned Photoshop. This is like Photoshop 2, I want to say, 2 or 3. So I started to learn the tools of design and I, I got kind of a crash course in typography. I got a crash course in layout. I got a crash course in, in color theory as part of my journalism program. I just was like, this is the stuff I want to do. What I also realized was like, my classmates were way better writers than I was. They were better journalists. They were more interested in going out and getting the story. They were way more interested in like interviewing people. Mm-hmm. But what I was really good at was I was really good at editing and I was really good at coming up with story ideas. And I was really good at like making them better writers. And I love doing the layout, which they all fucking hated. I mean, I bet they, they regret it now, but I was like, I will lay out all of this. And they were like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to go like be Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> and so I would sit in the lab, in the computer lab, and I would edit their stories. I would do like story meetings with them. I would lay all their stuff out. So I learned how to flow copy. I learned how to just do, you know, grid systems by just laying out a lot of print. And at the time, too, is like we'd send it out to print. This is like really old. We would literally lay it out, then print the pages, and then you'd cut them, and you'd, you'd paste the, the gutters, like the, the columns with gutters. There was this machine we had where you'd put it through, and it would put wax on it, and you could like, you'd sort of cut and paste your layout. If we had a photo, we couldn't scan it because we didn't have good enough scanners. So what you do is you take your photo, you go to the darkroom, you'd, <laughs> you'd, you'd get a, a, a photo, like you'd develop it and then you'd like lay out your article and then I would literally like cut and paste it onto a piece of paper that would then get lithographed and then printed right so it was this sort of hybrid analog digital printing that we were doing Mm -hmm. so our typesetting was done digitally but the actual layout was kind of cutting things out which was like an awesome way to learn how to do layout like it was so physical I then ended up going to a magazine where I was hired because I could run a website at this point and I could do like web 
design at that point, which was pretty rudimentary, but I could lay out pages. And I ended up working in a magazine called Shift Magazine, which no longer exists, which was an amazing magazine. And there was like five of us working on this thing. And I would like run the website. I was writing stories. I was editing. And because I knew Quark, the art director was like, you come with me. And I would do layout with him. He would sort of say, okay, I want it like this. And then I would just spend hours laying out the magazine and then sending it out to print. So I got this lesson in like graphic design really through the print world. A guy named Malcolm Brown taught me all my basics of like design, but I was never really a designer. Like I was, I was basically mimicking what he was doing and copying what he was doing, but I developed an eye for it, I guess. And then I left the magazine and I ended up in an ad agency because that's who was hiring people with like I had all these skills. I had sort of now amassed these skills. I had mm-hmm. digital skills. I had a little bit of design. I could copyright, like I could write, you know, I had this sort of broad base of skills and I ended up in an ad agency in the interactive group. Very quickly, I went back into kind of that mode of being like that editor where now they had designers, like they had actual designers and they had actual like developers who were doing like shockwave and mm, like nice. future splash like not even flash it was like still like future splash i had never heard of future splash until we talked to jeff oh really yeah 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 that's like og that's some og stuff yeah <laughs> this is um, all pretty og stuff <laughs> yeah yeah this is like very very early days web um and and i kind of reverted back into that mode that i was in journalism school which was like hey there are people who are way better designers and developers than i'll ever be but what i'm really good at is like getting the best out of them And I just kind of went into that mode, which felt very comfortable for Mm -hmm. me. And I very quickly rose up the ranks in the agency world to become a creative director way earlier than I probably should have. Like I just didn't know how to manage people, but I knew how to like have an idea and get other people to execute it and be like, no, it's gonna be like that and let them kind of do what they do great. I got hired away from there to a company called Moda Media to be a creative director of the Toronto office where I became more of like a manager. And so what I really got good at or what I think I got good at, or where I spent most of my career, I'll let other people decide whether I'm good (laughs) at it or not, was really kind of in that mode of like managing creative professionals and like how do you get the most out of people and like get them to be awesome and come up with really great ideas and how do you frame things up so that they can design the things they want to do and develop the things that that you want. And I really kind of sat in that space since about 1998 you know, all the way through Teen Lacks. Now, at different times during my career, I've gotten much more kind of back down into like the weeds. And I think that with Jeff and myself, why it was a very good creative partnership was because we really had sort of opposite sides of what I think we needed, right? So I had some of the conceptual stuff and I was thinking about business. Not that Jeff doesn't, but I think I was just thinking about it more and I was thinking about like interaction and I was thinking about things that were pretty far out. And Jeff was just like really amazing, really, really talented executor. And he loved like, going deep, deep, deep into the details. And so, you know, that kind of came together in a really, really positive way. But then, I mean, even at Teen and Lax, I mean, after about year three, the business was growing so much, we actually had to separate out and like weren't really working together on a day-to-day basis anymore. Uh, Just we couldn't because the business needed us to be sort of covering separate clients. And so then I sort of built up teams under me and he built up teams under him and then so on and so on. Um, but yeah, so I would say that the majority of my career in the way that I talk about it is like what I'm really good at is managing creative professionals or that's what I spent my career being good at. What do you feel like are the biggest roadblocks for creative professionals that you've like over time learned to eliminate? Is it process stuff? Yeah, I think that the number one thing that that I see um, being done poorly is 
we take designers and we like just sort of say, yeah, okay, just, you know, like open Photoshop. I need a website or I need this thing. Like go, go design. Pass me a static mock. Just, yeah. Or just, just like, give just me one of them. Just show me a picture. That'd be great. Thanks. Yeah. Like, like with clients, they'd be like, yeah, okay. So I need, um, like a website and you know, so like, what's that going to take? So what we do to designers is we like, you know, open sketch or Photoshop and we just sort of go, okay, design, you know, we just yell at them and it's like getting in a cab and yelling drive, you, you know, you're not, you're not going to go anywhere. You might go somewhere, but you're just not going to necessarily go where you need to go. And so really what you spend your time doing is trying to shape a space within which design can happen. And so what blocks designers, I feel is that that space just isn't created for them and that they don't really know what to do inside of it. And so the job to, that you have to do is like, all right, here's how to think about this problem and now go take your great skills and apply it to this problem that we understand very well or as well as we can. And that's just often not given to designers or sometimes it's given to them in this like, one thing I see a lot of companies do is provide a market analysis. So they say there's a lot of money over in this thing that exists in the world. Okay, let's go build something to go get that money. And it's like, okay, that's not, like I like how he built something good well or anything like like what like if I were to say designers okay let's okay so like open up sketch okay right so what uh, yeah travel all right let's go you know it's like it that's not a problem to go solve there's like a difference between a need and a demand yeah right like market demand yeah and 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 yeah that's exactly it it's like it's like market demand is awesome it tells you that there's a pool of money sitting over there but that doesn't tell you what to make to go get that pool of money and so a lot of my job is figuring out how to frame those problems up to designers who want to think about this in a certain way. And often the way they think about problems is just different than say how an engineer thinks about the problem or how maybe a product manager thinks about the problem or how a marketing person thinks about the problem. And uh, yeah, the customer doesn't really think about the problem. They have the problem, right? And it's our job to try to understand that deeply. You know, we were talking before about you know, jobs to be done as a way to understand that. Yeah. Problem. Could you run through that and just explain like why that's something you've been thinking a lot about? Well, I, I've spent my whole career trying to be like, okay, well, how do you frame up these problems for people? Right. And I've looked at a lot of what would be called like strategic frameworks or business model type of things. And they never really worked in the way that I wanted them to work. And what I found at TNLAX we were doing is like, we'd come to each client and we were kind of each time we were doing something new to try to frame up the problem and it wasn't repeatable and it was kind of it was very exhausting processes uh i like every time i want it to be like a straightforward very like orderly process but it changes every it changes single every time. time yeah let me talk about that in a sec um, yeah i'll get back to that because that's a really good point i have some thoughts on that um and so we came across about four years ago i want to say now this thing's called Jobs to be Done. And I started to look into it. And I was first attracted to it because it comes from Clayton Christensen, um, who came up with the innovator's dilemma. He's the, the, the Harvard professor. The concept of, of disruption comes from Clayton Christensen. And I yeah. had read his work in the early 2000s, and it had really formed a lot of my how I thought about innovation and you know how businesses work. And it was very, very influential to me. So I was instantly, I was like, okay, this is going to be some dope shit. And as I, <laughs> as I got into it, title page of the book, you're like, yeah, oh, yeah, oh shit. Go. <laughs> as I got into it, I was like, it, it became very clear to me that like, this was maybe the thing that I've been looking for in my career for a long time, because it seemed to do what I needed to do. And where it's the, the premise starts from this, which is 
there's a very famous quote from a guy named Theodore Levitt, who's a, I'm not sure if he's still, I hope he's still alive. <laughs> if he's not, I'm, I'm, he's missed. Um, <laughs> named, the late Teddy Levitt. <laughs> that, Ted Levitt. Um, and he had this quote, which he said, customers uh, don't buy a quarter inch drill bit. They buy a quarter inch hole. The idea behind that is that no customer is, they, they buy the outcome. If, if they could get that quarter inch hole through some other method, they would, right? The drill bit is merely a tool to get to the thing they want. And if you accept that to be true, which I do, you start to say, okay, well, what job are you trying to do? And if I understand that you're trying to drill a hole, well, why are you trying to drill a hole? Well, they're trying to drill a hole because I want to install a, a, an electrical socket. Okay, why do you want to install an electrical socket? Well, I want to install an electrical socket because I need a light here. Okay, so what you need is a light. And if I understand that, then maybe I can solve that problem for you without the drill bit, and I can sell you the, the ultimate solution. And so a guy named Bob Moesta started working on this problem and he came up with this thing called jobs to be done where it basically builds off Levitt's thesis which is no one ever bought a quarter inch drill bit they bought a quarter inch hole and he said that we don't actually wake up in the morning and suddenly say I need to buy a coca-cola today as much as brands would like us to think we do that we don't actually do that what we do is we hire brands and products and services into our life to solve to do a job for us and sim- similarly, we fire them out of our life when they don't do a job for us. And understanding the job that you're being hired to do is the trick to making great products. And I just, I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so if I can understand the job that we're being hired to, and the job is often not the thing that people think that they're being hired to do. A great example of this is, and this is an example from Bob, it's not mine, was um, Snickers had hired them. And I won't go into the whole backstory, but they've been hired to sort of try to understand why their sales were declining, what was going on here. And they spent a lot of time trying to understand what job people were hiring Snickers to do. Bob stood at the airport and he watched people walk up and buy Snickers bar and he'd stop them. He'd say, excuse me, you just bought a Snickers bar. Why did you buy that Snickers bar? And as he interviewed them, he began to understand that other chocolate bars were really perceived as like a treat or an indulgence. But a Snickers bar, I'm about to get on a plane. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to eat this Snickers bar. It gives me a little bit of energy. It fills me up because of the peanuts, (laughs) all that. And once they understood that that's why people were buying the chocolate bar, they totally actually reformulated the Snickers bar. So the way you bite into it, the way the car, it's harder. So it feels more substantial like a meal. Right, they started to market it, and if you look at all their current marketing, yeah. which is like you know mm-hmm. you, the the ones where it's like the you're all crabby and or is it and, a diva or something. Yeah, like that? yeah, yeah. It's you're like, not you when you're hung- when you're hungry. Right, right. That is all comes directly from understanding that the job people hire a Snickers bar to for a do. while didn't they replace their logo with just saying hungry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all of that, and even the, the product itself got reformulated more nougat, more nougaty. <laughs> yeah. So that's an example. You know, um, another one that I'll give is there was a client of ours or at Tina Lax, there was a client of ours that um, had has this amazing product that does uh, yoga, like online yoga instruction. They have like very, very high quality yoga instruction. And when we actually went out to talk to their customers, it turned out that there were, there were two distinct jobs being done depending on how well you knew yoga. So if you were mm-hmm. really into yoga, there was one thing that you were, job you needed to hire this product to do. And if you were new to yoga, there was like a different job that 
that you wanted to hire to do. And once we understood those, we could redesign the product to better deal with people in those different cycles and phases. And so what we offer from a feature standpoint to a new a person new to yoga is just entirely different than if you've been doing it for 10 years. And that was just very clarifying to the designers. And like, we just, we had just different conversations about what we were going to both design visually, but also the features that we were going to put in because we just understood why this thing should exist in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, like the product we were making should exist in the world and really jobs to be done at, at, at the end of the day is just saying, what job are you being hired to do? And there is a, technique for interviewing customers to get at that and you can learn it and it's not that hard it just takes some practice and that's the other thing I loved about it was I think other methods I had seen had all been like trademarked up the wazoo and they were like black boxed and they you know they had all these really gross kind of attributes and Bob was like no it's really simple you just want to understand what job you're being hired to do and here's how you interview people and for 20 bucks I'll sell you the book or we'll come train you but there was no kind of black box around it, which I just really liked. Do you know about the five whys? Yeah, he, he talks about the five whys. Yeah. It's very similar. Yeah, yeah, it sounds really similar. Yeah. To that, like actually getting to the core of a... Yeah, it, uh, uh, Bob talks about the five whys as, as part of a, a way okay. of... Yeah, yeah. There's some other nuance to it, which is that if you want someone to use your product, meaning hire your product, do a job for them, there are things that push and pull them towards the thing you're you're making and there's anxieties and habits that take them away from it and if you understand each one of those levers you can design to emphasize the push and pull and de-emphasize the anxieties and habits um or you know counter them wherever possible and that's once again very clarifying so when i look at design i'm sort of in my mind going okay what's gonna prevent me from using this product what am i actually like why am i actually using this versus the alternatives like what's going on here what's happening under and then i can just i can have a different conversation with the designer about the work as opposed to i don't really like the green you used you know which is just not a helpful conversation yeah how did that go back to what Bryn was saying about like the process is always changing. Yeah, so um, I don't think about process as a linear set of steps per se. I think about process, um, the best analogy I use is if you know anything about jazz or improv. Are we going full Matthias right now? Oh, does Matthias talk about that? Does he talk about jazz? Design is jazz. Yeah, well, I don't know I don't know Matthias' uh, argument around it, but my argument is, is that jazz or improv is just sort of a set of rules that loosely governed so like in musical improvisation whether it's jazz or whatever else you set a key you set a tempo and then you can just kind of like all right let's go right (laughs) let's play inside of this and if you know those rules you can make endless amounts of music with it right versus an orchestra which is following a very sort of much more rigid rigid and it's like prescribed like Mm -hmm. you do this then you do that you play this note then you play this note then you play this note and so um or improvisation in like comedy is a similar thing there's a set of rules that govern right you if you know about this it's like you never can ask a question of the other person where they can answer no it's always like a yes you know yes and 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 there's a you want to build on things and if you understand those rules and you practice them you can create great, you know, theater and comedy, you know, with that. And I think design is very, design process is very similar, which is if we agree that like we understand the problem we're solving and we understand that it's a real problem and we have an idea at least of how we'll know 
objectively, meaning using data, if we've solved that problem for people, then if we understand those three things, we can kind of work in anything. But if you don't understand those three things, like those are our rules that we have to follow. If you just sort of ignore any one of those, it's very hard to design. Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard to design. I think it's hard to create anything if you don't understand those three things. This reminds me of this discussion we've had. Uh, it's happened twice now, but I think you would have probably the most uh, authoritative or an authoritative opinion on it. And that's um, for young designers who are just getting started in their career yeah. uh, to start out at an agency or a single product-ish company. Um, yeah. s- startup would be the, the word there. Um, what do you think? <sighs> that's a really hard question to answer because it depends on the agency. It depends on the individual. Um, I would say that what consultants, whether they're agencies or some sort of you know, work for hire, right? Agency has a lot of really bad client work. Client work, right? You get someone's paying you to do work on their behalf. I think that there is, and ad- the advantage to that is you get kind of a lot of looks at a lot of different businesses. I think the muscle you actually really build up when you work doing client work is you get good at going into like new situations, diagnosing them really quickly. Like, so, oh, I see what's wrong. And then I know how to fix, I think I know how to fix this. That's a really great skill to have. I think it's harder to get that when you go into a single product company because it's like their problems are kind of well known and they just need to execute very fast against them. I think they're both kind of have their their pros and cons. I think that we're in a bit of a weird moment in the client services business. Not because I think agencies are dying or any of the hand wringing that goes on in the industry, but I think there is some shift happening there. And so I think that if you are a young designer and you're going into an agency, you just got to be very conscious about the company you're going into and Wait, what's, understand what's it. The sh- what's the shift that you're seeing though? The shift that we're seeing is I think that the industry is going through a bit of a like a, a barbelling, meaning that in the past, there was this really great business to be had if you were a five-person company or a 500-person company or a 50-person company, right? It was sort of like there was a lot of work out there. I think the middle is getting kind of squeezed because I think that as a lot of large companies internalize design and want to do that for themselves as a lot of these startups, the middle companies, the kind of ones in the 50 to 100, you know, are just going to be competing for a smaller amount of work. I think the smaller firms will be, the really highly specialized smaller firms, I think are going to be in great, great position. I think they do something very specific. They get sought out for for it. Their economics are such mm. that they can exist, Low right? overhead. Low overhead. You know, 20, tw- if you have like a 20, maybe up to 30 person company, maybe you're operating in not San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um you're nimble enough, you can do it. And then on the other side of it, I think there's kind of these large companies, multi-offices who are servicing clients who just need like a lot of like coverage. There's a great quote um, from uh, Michael Leibowitz who, who runs an agency in Brooklyn uh, called Big Spaceship. And he said, you know, there's times you need the army and there's times you need like a SEAL team. And he's like, we're a SEAL team. We're like, we are really, really hyper good at what we do. Like when you need someone assassinated, you call the SEAL team. But when you need a lot of boots on the ground, you call an agency, like you yeah. call like a big company. Yeah. And I think there are clients who just need like a lot of boots on the ground. When you finished up at T. Hen and Lex, yeah. how, how many 
did you have on the team? We were 40. Okay. Uh, and we had been 50. And I, you know, I definitely felt like you felt that we squeeze. were kind of going into the barbell. And there, that was, there was this pressure for us to really kind of like, from my standpoint, I figured we had to like move to the other, like it would have been really hard for us to go backwards. It would have been hard for us to go like back down to 20 or 30. Which really meant there was only like one way, which was up to like around 100, 75 to 100. That would require multiple offices. And that was something that none of us were all that interested in doing. It just meant our lives were going to be a certain way that just wasn't that appealing to us. Um, a lot of travel, uh, like a lot of being on planes and just that was not awesome for us. For us, like I think yeah. for, other, for other entrepreneurs and owners, I think that it's a different calculus they do uh just wasn't kind of what we were looking for and it's kind of cool because now you're getting the experience of working with a design team at that scale and it'd be cool to hear again your thoughts we talked before the show about like what the challenges are when you are suddenly in a company with 200 plus designers i think that one of the nice things when you own your own company is you can design you know teams the way you want and you, you you go oh this this seems to work and then um you know, when you come to the Valley and we were noticing this when we were working with a lot of companies that they have ideas about how they want to build teams down here. And, and this is just a thing that I think has gotten into the water down in the Bay area, about how many designers, you know, you need. And I think that there are one, people, hmm? one person just teams. One, all, well, <laughs> all the way down. Yeah. Forever. So, so I think that unicorns all the way down. I think that's, that's actually, there has been a mythology and I think there was a time <laughs> what like unicorns yeah mythology, yeah. mythology. <laughs> i think i think i think that down here we really there was a, there were a handful of very 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 talented designers coming out of the sort of web 2.0 era right the 2000, 2008 moving up into 2011 wilson minor is one that comes to mind you know mike mattis is another one that comes to mind these very very talented designers who were very comfortable up and down the stack, meaning they could code, they could design, they could design, you know, web interfaces. They were very, very comfortable with a, a sort of a wide domain expertise. And companies down here started just like targeting, like this is what a designer is. This one person that you can put into a group of 10 engineers and they can just produce amazing, amazing quality, well thought out. They control the means of production because they're like pushing diffs and I think that was true. There was a moment in time where that was like probably the right thing to do. And I think we've kind of passed through that. And I think that the complexity of the things we're designing is almost too much for a single designer to really, really be able to, to take into consideration. I can't think of a designer who has fully internalized Android, iOS, browser, both desktop, mobile, to the extent that we still design tablet interfaces that are unique from... That doesn't even take into Desktop. account like all the browsers. No, like there are a lot of <laughs> right. stupid things. Right, and 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 assuming you don't have to worry about that, but like some poor engineer is like working through that, uh, and then it doesn't also account that if your company has made some choice to support fringe devices like you know the Windows Phone or BlackBerry, BlackBerry. or whatever. <laughs> I go. mean, it just the matrix gets deep in a hurry, right? And then you want to throw on top of that, oh, and you need to code in all these these environments. Oh, and you need to be on top of like whatever the latest heuristics and user interface design, UX, usability. I, I just don't think it's realistic. And so really we're now moving into an era where you're talking about building teams of designers with complementary skills that sort of 
form Voltron in some way to do the work that needs to be done. The myth of the lone designer is just kind of exactly that. It's a myth. And those people, those designers I named, we just, we modeled an expectation that was not realistic or scalable. Um, We looked at the, not only just the top 1%, we looked at like these very rare individuals and said, oh, everyone should be like that. And I think designers have aspired towards that, you know, and I think simultaneously you see design, I see designers like, you know, racing after every framework that's come out and every, you know, whatever version of bootstrap or boilerplate that exists out there. And they're trying to like do it all right. Oh, I got to learn Xcode. Oh, I got to like go on a Coursera. I got to like do Treehouse. I got to do all these things. And I just think it's not healthy. And instead, I think the best designers are just really good problem solvers. They have a high level of craft. They can design, they can work with others and they understand what they're good at and what they're not good at. And then they go find kind of people to compliment them because there's probably some designer or maybe developer out there who's really good at the stuff they're not good at. And maybe I'm just biasing because like Jeff and I made our career that way where we're like, <laughs> we kind of like, but I really do believe that in the same way, like one developer and one engineer can't build it all. We're just getting to that point with design, like our maturity of our industry as such. And is that they're just, just, you can't do it alone. So the measurements you gave for what you look for are, are pretty abstract. That's that's like one of the hardest things people want something to quantify, right? You said high level of craft, you said get along gets along with others. I mean, those aren't things you can necessarily put measurements to. No, well, yeah, I mean, I think you mean like can I like put it like you mean can I put like an electrode to their brain and measure it or like what, what yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> Oh, this person's super crafty. <laughs> well, I think I think craft. I mean, yes, there is a subjective level to it. Mm-hmm. I think I think that um the tests that I, there were four tests that I always use when I think about work that we're working on. Mm-hmm. And I look ideally for work to kind of pass these four tests. So my first test is, you know, are you proud of it? Meaning the people who worked on it, would they stand up in a room of their peers and claim this work as their own? I think that's a really good test. If you ask any designers, like, are you proud of this work? Like, would you, would you display it? Would you? And I think that speaks to craft. Like, I think designers have a high quality bar generally. And if they're not satisfied, like if they're like, I would, I would never admit that I worked on this because I'm embarrassed by it. That's like, you know, that's bad, right? Can I cut in on that? Yeah. Do you feel like there's a gray area where designers are the kinds of people who are very prone to see imperfections and like they might be proud of it, but yet they still see and know of all the flaws. I think it's okay to never be satisfied. I think that's an okay quality to have. I think you, if you go through your career and there's like, there's nothing here I'd admit to working on, I think either you need to take a hard look in the mirror or (laughs) you've been working in really bad places, right? Like it's, it's one of those two and a little moment, you know, have a little soft moment of introspection Mm -hmm. um, and try to figure out which one it is. So, you know, are you proud of it? Right you know, would you stand up in a room of your peers and claim it as your own? But what, what if you're proud of something that you shouldn't be proud of? Like, well, you know, I think that, I think that, um, this debate, which is like, is there such thing as bad design? My take, and there are people who, who disagree, including I had this debate then with Daniel Burka from Google ventures and Mike Davidson, uh, at, at Twitter. My position is, is that I think that there's no such thing actually as quote unquote bad design, at least from an aesthetic standpoint i think that it may not be something you like or that i like there's nothing that's like there's nothing objectively 
bad about it, right? So if you want to lay out something in Comic Sans, it's not, I don't think it's particularly good design, but if you do, and there might be some other individual, like another individual thinks, oh, that looks pretty good. I don't think that that's objectively bad because I think that there's like this priesthood that there's all these rules and things like that is kind of insane, right? So I don't actually think there's anything that is objectively bad design. There's design I don't like, and there's design that I think is, is not great, right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that someone else doesn't find it good and so i don't have an issue now the dissenting opinion to that is that there is such thing as bad design so for example a cockpit like is so error prone that the pilot crashes the plane it's like bad design that was daniel burke's argument i'll give him credit for that and i kind of was like "Ah, okay but the majority of us aren't designing cockpits right like i think there are some scenarios where a bad decision makes something prone to error and that error can be catastrophic most of us just aren't building those types of that's things. That's bad right? QA. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I think there is an argument. Okay, well, that's bad design. Um, I think that, but when it comes to just aesthetic, I just don't think, I think it's just, it's just subjective. Yeah, right? it's very subjective. So, so I think that if, if there was a designer out there who says, I love all of the, everything I've done here, I think it's just amazing. And they were very happy. I'm like, okay, cool. I mean, you might not get a job at Facebook or you might not get a, <laughs> because we would just have a hard time saying, well, this is mapping to a quality that, that we have, it doesn't assimilate. Well, well, it doesn't, I, I wouldn't use the word assimilate. I think, I think that we have sort of collectively as a community of designers, at least at Facebook, we're, we're looking for a certain um, thing that we, that we think is of the quality that we're trying to bring to the community and mm-hmm. to the product. Right. And someone who's like, oh, I love all of these things. It's like, okay, that's just not that good. Um, subjectively. Subjectively. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that having said all that, I think that what designers are really great at is they have taste. Now, we all don't have the same taste, although sometimes when I go and dribble, I think we all have the same taste. But like, I actually think that, 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 <laughs> that, that um, you know, I think what designers have is taste. They're able to look at something that others won't and be like, oh, it should be a little bit like this. And people are like, oh, yeah, that looks like that seems dope. Like, that seems better. But there is a lot of designers out there that are very like have a lot of people who like their work. And I'm just like, eh, it's just not like it's just not really me. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I, it, it doesn't map to my taste, but that doesn't mean it's bad. We're quick to judge sometimes. And and that's not necessarily the healthiest thing. Um, so anyway, that's so so proud of proud of. Are you proud of it? The next one is, does it get used? And that's a little easier to objectively mm-hmm. look at, right? I think that if you make things that have no usage, while you may be proud of it, it's probably not that good, right? And and I mean... This one self-selects for the previous one. Yeah, I mean, you can use those in... in so Got I it. love it. No one used it. Okay, well, I loved it. And, and I think that if you're doing something that just you love and no one uses, you're doing it for your own personal gratification, and that's cool. But if you're going to be commercializing it it's not that cool it's <laughs> not fact, a good product it might be a good project a, yeah exactly exactly and I, and I think that that if you put something into the world and I always like um, I've told this story before but I'm like the thing that really got me into originally making websites like what I got such a charge out of was like back in 1994 was like I made this web page and then I like the next day I went and looked at the the logs right um, no Google Analytics back then. You would actually like open a text file and you'd look through it and I'd be like, oh shit, like 200 people like check this out. And the next day it's like, oh my God, 400 people check this out. And like, I've kind of been chasing that high ever since, right? Like I just love the concept. Like I made, like I worked on something and people like came and looked at it, right? And like that's, I think for a lot of us, 
in the industry, especially the, the early days. And like, that's all we're doing. Like we're just like pursuing that, that dopamine, <laughs> like that little you know, squirt of dopamine to be like, people actually like it. You know, it's like massive insecurities. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, Oh wow, you like it. Um, and so I think that, that, you know, you want ideally something that gets used. And now how many people use it as a success metric? You don't need things that are at like Facebook scale for them to be successful, but you want some idea of like, Hey, I'm really happy that X number of people seem to get value out of this thing. Or, Hey, I can make a number at X number of people using it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty good metric. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I I think that, that either one of those, right. Um, the other one, this is, I think it, you know, does it get talked about? I, I I don't want to focus too much on vanity metrics, but I think that if people are talking about it and I do am implying in that positively, not not mm-hmm. negatively, but I think there's some combination of the two that's that's net positive. Is this I mean, like I th- a buzz metric? I just think like, you know, you kind of know, I, I, Slack is a really good example of this, right? I just hear a lot of people talking about it. You okay. Know? And, and I think that that's a good, I think that's net positive for that product. A lot of people use it. A lot of people talk about it. A lot of people seem to love it, right? I think that's just a net positive product. I think they're doing the right things. And I think that's one of the, the measures of it. I think that's one of the indicators of it. And I think it's important to like, are people talking about it? Are the press talking about it? Are just people talking about it? What are they saying? Like, I think those are things you want to look for. The final one is, did you learn something in the act of making it? And I think that if you're making things and you didn't actually learn anything new, it means you're doing the same thing that you did previously. And that's not healthy. I think you should learn something which, with each thing you make that makes you better right? That you use that to improve. Even if it was a failure, like you learned something. Mm -hmm. And so I look at those four things and I'm always trying to like, look at those. And you know, if you can get four out of four, that's awesome. I think it's more realistic. You can get three out of four and that's okay. If you get two out of four, you really need to stop and like go, okay, what, you know, what's going on here, right? So if you made something that gets talked about, but you're not proud of it, you didn't learn anything. I think that's not a good thing to be continuously doing. Right. Okay. Um, I, I just think it's not good for your soul. At some point. <laughs> uh, an even more subjective metric. I like it. <laughs> well, I, but, I, but, I, but I think that, that I'm really talking about an individual, yeah. like assessing the things they're doing. And I think that those are just very personal and, and intimate. Well, you're talking about something that, and, and we talked about this, uh, playing to your strengths. And mm-hmm. I think when we had Julie on, she said, very similar things that, especially at Facebook, they talk about this, you know, like play to your strengths, yeah. understand what you're good at. I personally, and I hope I speak for other people that feel this as well, like am very, very aware of the weaknesses yeah. and want to spend my time working on those. So for example, the fact that I don't know how to write anything in Xcode, write right. anything that bugs me. And like, I want to learn that. Uh, the fact that I don't know how to do X in JavaScript, like that bugs me. Yeah. Do you have advice for people that maybe feel that same way? Where like, yeah, maybe they have these strengths, but they feel like this this really strong pull to the things that they're not good at. And yeah, and I think that learn. I think that if you're passionate about going learning things, you should go learn those things. I think that you should also be honest. Your time is limited. There will come a point in time where you'll say, "I have an hour to spend. Where should I best? Should I go learn like another thing in Xcode, or should I start to emphasize the thing that I'm really good at?" If I use myself as an example, I just had that realization very early on. Like, I'm never going to be as good a writer as, you know, any of these people. Does that mean I just like don't try to get better at writing? No, but I just was like, I'm 
like going to focus my time in a different place, right? I still like spent a lot of time working on that craft and I feel like I'm a much better writer today than I was in college, but I chose not to professionalize it in in my career because I just thought that that just wasn't the best use. For you, there's going to come a point in time where you're like, you know what? The the amount of energy is going to take me to get to that next level in Xcode or in JavaScript versus my energy. Like, is this the best use of my time? And I think that that's the trade-off that you make. So it's not to say like, oh, I'm strong at this and therefore I'm going to ignore the rest of this. I think you're going to want to level everything up, but it, there's a functional limit to that. You're probably never going to code like Xcode or Objective-C as well as potentially an engineer that's coming out of MIT, right? And the challenge energy. accepted <laughs> well but and it, but if you were like no i think i will then you should focus your your strengths there right there just there just comes a time where where you will choose like hey i would love to get like back into making things right like i like and there's a huge steep learning curve for me because i've been out of it for like in terms of like coding things and javascript and things like that right and so when i when i do the math and i'm like okay it's going to take me like if i sort of commit an amount of time you know to this a week i could probably get to some level of proficiency because i have some basis of knowledge and some you know i i've done it in the past at various times in my career but it's just not the best use of my time right now if i was really like passionate about it personally i would make the time or i'd carve out the time but professionally that's just not my going to be my strength but i think when you're earlier in your career you do want to kind of do a lot more diversity of things but there will come a time where you're like you know what this is the thing i love doing the one the one piece of advice i give young designers is like try to figure out as quickly as possible the thing you love doing and the thing you hate doing and then just do more of the thing you love doing and less of the thing you hate doing and it just takes time to kind of get that sense of self right but the quicker you come to it the more the, the more you're going to start to focus on those things you're like i love doing this one question i ask a lot of young designers is i'm like when are you happiest like what's the thing that you do that you love doing and they kind of answer I'm like hey what's the thing like if you could never do it again like in design like what is that thing that you would never do again if they sometimes they don't know right they're like oh, i don't really know i love it at all it's like okay well there will become a day where someone's going to ask you to do something and you'll be like i never want to do this again i'm like okay that's the thing you hate doing don't like stop doing that <laughs> uh-huh. right so so i think that that getting that good sense of self just some takes some time it takes some self-awareness and then you start to that's where you mold your career but i think the idea that you have to level everything up like evenly where your your javascript and xcode will be as good as your your, your design and maybe your product thinking that's a tall order I mean, if you can do it, do it. But if you don't do it, don't don't consider that a failure. So it sounds like you're making the deep, not broad argument. Yeah. I think that, once again, going back to the mythology, I think a lot of designers think they need to be these, like, you know, unicorns, these multi-headed, mm-hmm. like, I'm awesome at everything. And I think that's just really unhealthy. Like, I, I don't think that that's good. It's an unrealistic expectation that we levy on people. You know, it's okay to be better at, like, parts of what you do. There's probably a job for you <laughs> being really mm-hmm. good at that thing like in the same way that like i said just using myself it's like i just like hey i'm really i think i'm really good at like making other people like good at what they do and i'm just going to focus on that and it turns out there's a career in that right i mean i think like the greatest compliment there was a designer team actually chris tanner who's who's yeah, on my team who's on your team and he didn't actually tell this to me it came kind of through a back channel but it was like the greatest compliment i could ever get and and chris said Working with John made me a better designer. And I'm like, yeah, like I just, like I want, like I aspire to hopefully have as many people as possible, you know, say that to me. So I'm going to like figure out how to do that. 
because I think I enjoy doing that. Like I love that. Like that's really, really good. But that's not easy to do. And it's not easy to do across, you know, right now, roughly, you know, almost 50 designers across three offices, managers. That's a hard problem. And that's where I'm going to be spending this part of my career trying to trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. So we're like out of time right okay. now. But the reason I've been hammering on these objective measurements is yeah. because I've had a lot of people lately. We have this Slack team uh, for, for our little network. Yeah. And people are constantly like, okay, what, how do I get good? Like, what's the, just the plan? Right. And there's just no measurements. And I've been like trying to explain that. And you just like hit everything. And it was great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there are designers out there who just want to maximize their, their earning. Right. Mm-hmm. And if there, you can be a certain designer who just like commands a high price and, you know, gets, gets work. And I think there's things you can do in terms of building up um, a brand essentially to, to do that. Right. You create a persona and you, people come to know you as the XYZ guy or girl. Right. And you can be, you know, you pick this part of the world that you're really good that you're like, I am just good at this and it, it pays me a lot of money. And then I think that, that that's okay. But I think that for most creative professionals, they want to do something that's very satisfying personally. And that in doing so, if they can get paid for it, that's sort of like, that's, that's the goal. And so go do work that excites you. Go do work that you're just like, try to think about that moment. You're like, I love this. I want to do more of this. And like that thing, I want to do less of that. Um, and then that tends to create this like virtuous circle in your career, mm-hmm. right? But like I said, just if I have advice, it's like figure out what you love doing, figure out what you, you hate doing, do more of the thing you love doing, less of the thing you hate doing. Get good at problem solving. I think that designers don't read enough. I think they don't do critical thinking enough. Some do, a lot don't. A lot of them, like think about what you read on any given day. Like if you're just like reading designer news, it's nothing as designer <sighs> news, but it's just like, it's it, like, that's not critical thinking, right? That's like a bunch of people kind of it's reality TV for Yeah, designers. yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's fun and it's like it's 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 cool, but it's got dopamine involved. It does. And like look at what Julie writes. I mean, that's some critical thinking about design and design management. Go spend some time, you know, there's some amazing podcasts around culture where people are talking deeply about this kind of stuff. Like just get outside of your 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 kind of like what's the latest JavaScript framework I should be learning. That stuff's valuable, but it'll change. Like there'll be another JavaScript framework in two weeks and you'll learn that one. And it's like in two years, three years, what, you know, you know, a lot of frameworks, but can you think critically? (laughs) I've I've tried and failed to learn a lot of things for the sake of learning them. If you just are building something and that's the right tool for the job and you start to use it, then it sticks and it becomes a valuable skill instead of just book knowledge. Yeah. People go to Treehouse and like run through all the courses and then they never use it. Yeah. Yeah, or or you the the like flavor of the month changes, and now you're like you're just chasing this fashion, you know, and you're never actually developing core skills. Trend right. cycle, yeah, throw it away in six months. Yeah, yeah, like what, Ruby, are we still using that? I don't, I don't know. Well, I, two things. First, uh, just to be right on this point, do you have a book or a, a favorite? Doesn't have to be design related. A favorite piece you get of writing one, that you come never, back to. Never speak of anything. Yeah, else. Yeah, you get one shot at this. <laughs> Um, if get, you say more, we're going to edit it out. Okay. So do, is there one piece that I come back to again and again? Um, I would say, so I, I referenced Christensen's work earlier. And I think that if you can read and really understand the innovator's dilemma, that 
is a way of looking at the world. And inside of that book, he basically creates a way to think about industry and business and why products succeed and fail. And then you just look at the, like once you kind of understand it, you just see it everywhere. That's super powerful because once you understand how to construct frameworks for understanding the world, and then you can start to build your own frameworks of understanding the world, or you can then hear it like a whole bunch of things unlock for you. Um, professionally, I think like you're just, you're able just to sort of take in inputs, organize them and understand what to do with them. And once you see the world that way, it's very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one I would, I would, I kind of go back to again and again. Yeah. I have a lot of people come to me and ask, I want to learn to design or I want to learn to code specifically. I want to learn to code. And they say, "Where, where do I start? What do I learn? And so just, from the sake of like a a new designer, I think that the scariest part is, am I making the right choice? Like, is am I if I learn JavaScript, like, is that going to lead me to success? And if if I choose Ruby, like, is that the right path? My advice to them has been like, choose one that will help you build things you want to make, and like, then you can hopefully develop core skills that will transfer. Can I jump in on this? Yeah, learn it because you're building something right now that needs it. Hmm. which is kind of what I was saying a minute ago. Right. But I've I've read Objective-C books. I've read Swift books. I've read all these things. They won't stick with me until it's because I like need that thing for a purpose. And it's and a, a good example. Someone was like, oh yeah, I read the Hig the other day and it's like super dense and it doesn't really mean anything. I'm like, no, but you're supposed to read it while you're working on that thing. Like read the part about tab bars while you're working on a tab bar. You'll get it right. Like that's the trick. It's really dense it's like, until you're using it correctly. It's like reading a shop manual for like, yeah. a, for like an Acura and be like, I didn't really get it. It's like, well, <laughs> it's not something to read on the toilet. It's yeah. something to read while you're looking at the car. It's not prose. Like it's, it's, it's a manual. Yes. Don't read it long form. That's a bad idea. Yeah. The, 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 the you know, <laughs> the one thing I will say is like, is like, you're right. It's like, these are tools. You know, and it's like, should I use the hammer? Should I use a saw? It's like, well, it depends what you want to do, right? And it's like, which one's the right choice? It's like, it still depends what you want to do. And I think that what I, the first thing I would say is like, it doesn't matter. There is no wrong, right? Like, as you said, it's like you grab the tool to do the job you need. And it's like, you don't think about it afterwards. Now, it may turn out like after the fact that you you did use the wrong tool, but who cares? Right? Now you've learned something and mm-hmm. you move forward. Like this this idea that there's this hyper efficiency is once again, that's a, it's a very Valley concept, right? Like I, I, there's this straight line and if I veer from it, I've somehow failed. Right. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that's, or that if you stick to it, you can succeed automatically. Yeah. Yeah. Either one. It's like one thing I've, I, I never understood. I'd hear like young professionals, designers would do this, but I, I hear a lot of people say, I need a five-year plan. I need a five-year plan. Like, cause I, I'm like, if you had asked me at any given, like forget five-year point in my life, like when I was 30, where will you be when you're 35? Or when I was 35, where will you be when you're 40? I would have been like horribly wrong. None of that. If you give me a two, like if I'm 30, like where are you gonna be when you're 32? I would have been equally as wrong. Like, I think it's really bad to try to like future obsess like that. And instead you make choices in the moment that are the right choices. And here's the thing. You can make another decision tomorrow, 
right? So like you, you started to do this thing in JavaScript and turns out that's not working. You can change your mind. Like these things are not permanent. Or even better, you can say, oh, this part's good in JavaScript. This part needs to be a backend language. Yeah. I, I can actually learn a little bit of two things instead of learning the whole of JavaScript. That's an impossible task. Yeah. Unless and- you're at fat Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like, so Jake, yeah. So Jake, <laughs> Jacob, not Jesus. Um, <laughs> I mean, but like, like, yeah. So I, I think that's another piece of advice I'd give people. It's like, you can always make another decision tomorrow and don't get paralyzed by it. It's funny. Mark talked about this and I totally agree in the, in a Q and a Zach. Yeah. Where he just said like, look, you know, most decisions are not catastrophic, right? Most decisions we make are actually not undoable. And in the decisions that we have in our life or in our professional life and our personal lives, very few of them are like, some are catastrophic, but most aren't. And you just need to like understand that, you know, you'll survive and you'll move on and, you know, life will go on and, and not to be too worried about it. And I know that's hard when you're 22 and you like want the thing you want now, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and like you matter a lot you know, to you. Um, and you just got to kind of like roll past that. One thing I do talk about too, is like, this is, you're gonna have a long career, right? Like I've been doing this now. I mean, you heard me talk about my preamble of my career, 20 years I've had a career, right? In this business. And a lot of stuff has changed and it'll continue to change. And so don't think so short term about like, what am I, where am I going to be the next two years? What startup am I going to? What agency am I going to? These things like will work themselves out, make a good decision. Now you can always make another decision, you know, tomorrow and, and it'll work out. I mean, ideally you will. Yeah. Keep making good decisions. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, should relieve you from the pressure of having to make a perfect decision. Mm-hmm. you know, um, at this, at this minute, Making better than one, one yeah. big perfect decision is a lot harder than a bunch of small, good decisions. And I'm not, I'm not sure a perfect decision actually exists. That's right. Like, fair like, point. like, like, I think that's, you like to think like, I'm just going to make this decision. Everything else is going to fall into place and it, it doesn't work. And I think that, you know, even in your design, when you're designing, um, I see a lot of designers like, like obsessing over like what typeface to use. Right. And there's this point of diminishing return which like if you spend another six hours on this the typeface you select is not going to be much better than the favorite one you have right now right that's always my advice use the one you know like or or, or or just the default what's uh, the ones you've looked at like what's the one that sort of is okay just move on right you can change it later like you can come up with an like you can that's an easy change it's a very unimportant like easy to change thing and i think that one thing that i have you know i think when I work more down in the details with designers, mm-hmm. one thing I, I think I can provide them is to say, this is good enough, let's move on, and we can come back to this, right? To get them unblocked and moving forward is saying, you spending another three hours on this is just not the best use of your time, and it's not going to get that much better. But also knowing when it's like, you need to actually spend another three hours on this because it's not at that place right and often when you're working on it you just don't have the objectivity you're just too close to it right which is why like going back to the writing which is the thing that comes why we have editors right is like we need that objective third party to look at what we're doing and say hey i like what you're doing here but you need to work on this more this isn't clear like because you just can't see it and it's also going back just to tie back all my points why i think lone designers aren't healthy because i think Mm -hmm. you need someone who who you are who, hey, can you take a look at, like, think about when you're at your most creative is, I would hope is when there's that moment where you're like, hey, take a look at this. What do you think? Like, 
that is also something that I think is an unhealthy aspect of the value, which is because we sort of set up these constructs of these lone designers, designers start to not share their work and show their work because their expectation is I need to be able to do this end to end on my own. And if someone else is helping me, that is weakness. Yep. And it's like, that is like strength, you know, like for you to be like, like make your work better, you know? So I'm going to like go into plug mode for just a second okay. here. We launched our product today. Uh, my day job it's called sidewire it's in best new apps on itunes nice plug what up uh <laughs> a lot of the details that i was unsure of yeah i took into this spec slack team where we have a public critique yeah which i call my uh, invisible design team and <laughs> i got feedback yeah the first second third days we did it and it all made it into the launch app in a, and it made it the product much better it's awesome. like just having people there filling you in on things you just aren't noticing because you've been staring at it for yeah. forever. Hugely helpful. Uh, Product Hunt, I think Ryan Hoover's been doing that. They've been sort of designing a bit more out in the open. They've been very open. I know. Oh, they've um, been working with uh, TM, right? We are TM. I don't know who they are. Uh, Sean Modi and... Oh, it's Sean Modi. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, and also, um, I Steph know... Steph Bain, I think is her name. Brad Frost yeah, has done some designs out in the open. I think there's pros and cons to that, but I think you know if you're able to intake that input and synthesize it and not just like do everything that everyone tells you, but like use it in a really constructive, valuable way. That's, that's, that's really cool. Um, unfortunately at Facebook, we're unable just because of the things we work on to do yeah, that out in the open. Course. But I do think that, you know, trying to create one of the things that we talk about values where we could, you know, instill this as a value at a design team level is, is really saying, you know, designers don't design alone that is something that we value, right? Um, we could do that. And I don't think that would conflict with necessarily anyone else's values or someone would be like, no, don't do that. It's just not a good <laughs> idea. You know, um, <laughs> you should be alone in a dark room. You know, <laughs> One aspect of that that has been super helpful yeah. for me is when you do give ask for feedback or like say, here's what I'm working on yeah. to just provide like one sentence of context yeah. about like, here's what I need your thoughts on. Yeah, frame um, the problem. Yeah, yeah, it gets hugely important. If you just say, what do you think? It's really easy to get in the weeds and say like, oh, well, we should work on this. We should work on this. The visuals yeah. here are wrong. It's like, well, I didn't need help on the visuals. I need help on X. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, and that's just critique. Focusing skills. it. Yeah. yeah. It can yeah. be, it can be very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So one more thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was from a while ago. Okay. Okay. You keep saying, do less of the thing you hate, do yeah. more of the thing you like. Yeah. And a lot of people take that at face value of just reduce the one thing and replace it with the other thing. But at first, you can't just replace it, right? Especially if that thing you hate pays you money. You can't get rid of it. And, yeah. and the common argument against the do less with the thing you hate, do more with the thing you love is that it's privilege. Because they, they take it as, oh, just swap it out because you have that freedom. That's not what it is. It's, it's putting it in a night shift. I mean, it's, it's doing that thing in excess until it overtakes the other thing. Like, look, you don't always have the luxury to like pick and choose the things you want to work on. But yeah. if you understand, it's like, oh God, I hate this. Then you can start to actively work to minimize it in your life, right? Mm -hmm. So an example of that is in our business, there was a there was a time at TNLAX where we display advertising paid a lot of the bills. And we always were like, oh, this is like not what we want to be doing. This just isn't the work we, we want. And eventually we just stopped taking it we just started saying no to it and it just, it went away over time. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, once you kind of say, look, I'm not going to do this anymore. 
miraculously you're, you're sort of incented to now figure out like how to like replace it. Right. But if you don't, you're addicted. You just, there's no one you're like, Oh, I hate doing this, but it's like money. And advice I give to young designers, especially those who are doing freelance or they're working on like client type work is bad clients drive out good. And there is such thing as a bad dollar. Right. And that if you start to get into this habit of doing work you hate doing you're never like when are you ever going to get the good clients because you create this this cycle where what happens is is that's the work you have to show and therefore it attracts more like it so you never actually get out of that cycle of doing the work you want it's like including your portfolio the work you want to do yeah the type of work you want yeah and if and 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 then so then what some designers do is they like create sort of fictitious work to go Mm -hmm. get it and then eventually client comes in and says okay well you know can you show me some other work? And they're like, well, this is really the work I'm doing. And I actually really encourage them to like feel the pain of like saying no to that business and feel like that gut wrenching anxiety of like, I need to figure out how to go get that work that I want. And if you don't, it, it, that's not privilege. That's like, that's like, that's motivating, you know? And, and I really encourage, it's like, look, whenever I hear companies go, Oh, well, we have to do it for the money. I'm like, that's really dangerous and it, it will bite you precedent. in the ass. Well, and it just, you'll never get out of the cycle. Whatever that work is that you really want to do, it's like, well, why would this company ever work with you? Like you are the thing that you do, right? And so I really discourage that line of thinking and rationalization as much as possible. It doesn't, like I said, look, we did banner ads. There was a period of time we did it. There was It kept the lights on. It, it did a lot of things, but we worked really hard to to remove it from our business and it probably it took too long and actually when I, if i were to mark what people in the industry know us as the work that we did mm-hmm. i can pretty much mark it from the day we stopped doing that work and started focusing on the product work that we wanted to be doing that's like a watershed moment was when we stopped doing display advertising and focused entirely on product and there were some crappy times in there there were some like times where we would call white knuckling it where we're just like, I don't, I don't know if we're going to make it, you know? And somehow it's just like, we just were, we figured it out, you know? And, and I think if we had the cushion of like some crappy work that we didn't like doing, paying the bills, I'm not sure we would have like done the work that we did. Like it, it motivated us to like, go like, well, what's the work we want? Why do product work? Where's everything? Let's get on a plane. Let's go like meet those people. Let's go talk to them. Let's build those relationships. Let's start that process. Yeah. I think if we were busy with like working on something else, we wouldn't have done that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for sticking around for like a full extra half hour. <laughs> That's yeah. going to be a good half hour. It was worth it. Thanks for joining us. Anything you want to plug before you go? <laughs> I have nothing to plug. I'm good. You're freaking are you going to ridiculous sp- unofficial website? Oh, you want to, well, I, I can't the johnlax.com. You better have your computer muted. Yeah. Well, no, 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 please. That's, that's <laughs> TLC waterfalls. You want to hear that. It's I, half I'll, the experience, but it's going to come through poorly on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to, do you want to hear the story behind it? Yeah, actually. Um, the story behind johnlax.com this is a funny story in about 2000 and I want to say seven or eight. I don't know exactly when it was. There was a, there was someone who worked at, at, Tian and Lax, who had the just, best taste in the world. <laughs> well, no, they didn't actually do it, but the, the story starts kind of at this point in time where he had, for some reason, realized that johnlax.com was available as a domain. He asked me, he's like, Oh my God, aren't you going to buy it? And I said, No. I said, I don't, 
like, what the hell am I going to do with it? Like, I, I don't need a vanity domain. This is not, what am I going to do with it? And he got really upset. And he was like, well, what if someone like buys it and does something like really awful with it? And I was like, what the, like, and I was like, what could they possibly do? I said, first of all, <laughs> I'm very findable on the internet. You know, like I was, like, I was kind of a known quantity at that time. I'm like, people know who I am and they can find me and there's all these ways to find me. And if someone did something really ridiculous, they would know it wasn't me. I was like, I have no need for a domain like that. That's ridiculous. But this, this turned into a very heated argument in the office. And as we were having this argument, a developer at the company named Chris Irwin registered the domain while we were having this fight where I was like, I don't need the domain. He's like, you're crazy. Someone's going to do something awful with it. And then proceeded to forget about it, like completely (laughs) just like forgot that he had this domain. And in the summer of 2012, I was walking through the office and Chris says they were him and some people were just kind of giggling about something. And and I said, Hey, like, what's up? And Chris says, you remember about four years ago, uh, you were having that argument about johnlax.com. And like, I had completely forgotten about it too. And I'm like, uh, vaguely. And he's like, and he sort of recounted the story. I'm like, oh yeah, 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 totally. I remember that. He goes, well, I own the domain. (laughs) And I just started laughing. And I said, all right, Chris, here's a challenge for you. You need to create a site like that walks up to the line of like, it, it, it needs to be something where like, if you step over that line, I'm going to fire you. But if you just find that line, like perfectly, I think I'll think it's like hysterically funny. And he's like, challenge accepted. Right. (laughs) And then we, I kind of forget about it. And I had started dating my girlfriend very recently. And we were up at, uh, we have like a lake. My family has a lake house. Uh, We woke up on a Saturday morning and she turned on her phone and she said, you're on the front page of Reddit. <laughs> this is maybe like four weeks after we had started dating. And I go, what? And I, I go on it. She's like, I got a note from my her brother who lives here in San Francisco. He was like, is this the guy you're dating? And, <laughs> and that site was what he had put oh up and posted on Reddit. And it hit the front page of Reddit. And uh, uh, the rest is, is that's that still exists. And the funniest part was his hosting bill that month was like... <laughs> Was like, he paid for it. He paid for it. It was like fifteen hundred bucks or something like that. Because oh, like, shit. like he 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 just it got hammered right in like that one day when it got on. Well, you do have the counter. Yeah. Well, it's not me. So first of all, it's it's it's. Oh, Chris. you still don't own it. I still don't own it. Chris oh, wow. Chris Irwin owns it, and he uh, he maintains it, meaning he hasn't touched it since he put it up in two thousand and twelve. He renews the domain. He I, renews the domain. I hope that's he, in his portfolio somewhere. Somewhere, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, on mobile, it's. Are great. you proud of it? <laughs> I'm very proud of it. On mobile, um, uh, the the heads move with an accelerometer. So nice. it's like, like yes. there's a lot of little details that are really design really good. details. You a lot say? of design details. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah beautiful. Well, thanks for telling thanks. the story. <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun. Cool. Sixty-three. That was a long episode, but it was so worth it. I loved that episode. We hope you did too. If you did, you're just saying that because he's your boss. <clears throat> no, I'm not. Hit us up on Twitter. We're at Design Details FM. We'd love your feedback, comments, suggestions, critiques. Uh, or, of course, you can always chat with us on our Slack team. That's at spec.fm slash Slack. More than a thousand designers and developers are in there chatting about the latest tools and uh, the episodes coming out on the Spec Network. And music and negativity and critique. There's something for everyone. There's something for everyone. Before we go, huge thank you once again to Code School for making this episode possible. Code School is a place to learn how to code. 
uh, even if you have already been developing for a long time and you just want to learn something new or brush up on existing skills, go to codeschool.com slash design details. They have really immersive video lessons that will help you learn to code from your browser by actually writing code. Uh, they have tons of courses in things like JavaScript, Ruby, Git, HTML and CSS, and iOS. You can also brush up on elective courses like TryR and the Chrome Dev Tools. They have an iPhone app and iPad app. Don't miss it. Learn how to code at codeschool.com slash design details. See you on Monday.